Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Our special guest, Tony Trishka, has been called perhaps the most influential banjo player in the Roots music world. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor, believe me. I want you to take us back a little bit. Tell us about hearing the Kingston Trio. What was it about hearing them that got you excited? Well, the very first album I ever owned was the Kingston Trio at large, and this was in the early 60s, and they had a song on there called Charlie and the MTA, or maybe just the MTA, and I'm listening to it, and I suddenly hear this banjo break in the middle of it, and I just went, oh my gosh, I've got to play the banjo. It was love at first hearing, I guess you'd say, and I was already playing some folk guitar, because it was during the folk scare of the early 60s, and anyway, their banjo player was Dave Gard. And he was a wonderful banjo player. And this solo was kind of like, kind of his version of Scrug style. And so, anyway, I, I just flipped out, made my parents buy me a banjo for Christmas, and got a long neck folk banjo. And then I asked, well, where can I hear more of this? And people said, oh, listen to Earl Scruggs, find Earl Scruggs. So I got a Flatten Scruggs album called Folk Songs of Our Land. And it went on from there. In an interview I did with Pete Seeger, he talked about how there were certain things about the banjo's sound that he was attracted to. What about you? What is it about the banjo? If you could put it into words, why do you like it? Boy, it's uh, it's so, um, I don't know, it's hard to put into words because I've, I've done many interviews with other banjo players myself and I, you know, I'll ask that question, why did, what was it about the banjo? And they say, it's the sound. And it's hard to go beyond that. I mean, it's for me, I think the Kingston Trio, this MTA song, it was a very fast solo, so it was, I sort of refer to it as the magpie effect or something really flashy that attracts your attention, and that's kind of what it was. It's really fast, very exciting, and it's a percussive sound because you get those metal finger picks going against the metal strings, and it's got this really kind of edgy, exciting sound, and whatever that was just completely grabbed me and continues to this day. After 50 years, I'm still excited about the banjo and still obsessed with it. So I'm not sure if that's a good thing, but I guess that's all I can do. (laughs) This is kind of a two-part question. Of the well-known banjo players, of the ones that are popular, I guess you could say, who are your influences that people would know? The, The average person would know probably the only one. Earl Scruggs would be the only one that people might know, and if they ever saw the Beverly Hillbillies, they certainly heard him play. And he was definitely the man. He was the main one. There were others, but you know, I think most people wouldn't know the other ones. There's a guy named Bill Keith who was a very, very major influence on me also. But again, he's less well-known. He played with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys back in the 60s. Well, the second part of the question, this comes from... Crawford Cruz of New Orleans, who uh-huh. he, he first of all expressed profound admiration for your performing. Oh. But, but he wants to know who are the lesser known banjo players that you love. That I love? Yeah, though. Not necessarily um, influences, but just banjo players that I love. Right. 
Well, Bobby Thompson, I love, and he passed away recently. He was, if anyone ever heard the Hee Haw theme from that television show, that was his banjo playing. And he just was an amazing banjo player who played with Jim and Jesse in the late 50s. Anyway, he's one I could go through the history of each of these people, but that would be a little too much. But anyway, Bobby Thompson was one. I'll mention names that they're not necessarily not well-known, but anyway, Pete Seeger is, is one of my big heroes. I mean, on many levels, but just speaking about the banjo, he was a wonderful banjo player, and anyone who thinks that all he would do is strum the banjo should check out Blue Skies from his Goofing Off Suite album from the 50s, 1955. He was way ahead of his time, and that will be a real eye-opener for people, I think. Other banjo players, Noam Bikelny is getting to be better known. He's an amazing, amazing banjo player these days. He's kind of on the cutting edge of what can be done on the banjo. Plays in a group called the Punch Brothers with Chris Thiele and, of course, Bela Fleck, one of my favorite banjo players. A guy named Alan Mundy is another one. I mean, I have many favorite banjo players. I'm a big fan of many of these people, but those are, I could go on, but I'll leave it at that for the moment. There are so many facets of music that you do, from producing other people's albums, such as the Steve Martin record, recording your own albums, performing, composing songs. What would you say your biggest passion in music is? Wow. I think it depends on the day. I just was teaching in Ithaca, New York this past weekend, and I remember sitting down on a Friday evening to start teaching this group of people. And it was, I'd just been hanging out with some friends and just had some dinner, and I was just not in the mode of being a teacher. And then suddenly I'm sitting in front of 15 banjo players, and I've got to teach. And I was like, and I said something like, oh, wait, okay, now I have to be a teacher. And I just like kind of snapped into it, and suddenly I'm teaching. And I get really passionate about teaching. My father was a professor of physics at Syracuse University, so I guess it's in the blood on some level. And so I can get very passionate about teaching. And I have this online banjo school, and I can be very passionate about that also. But then there are times when I'm playing with some of my favorite musicians, and, and it's certainly easy to get passionate about playing that. So, And I can get passionate about producing also, when I'm producing my own or Steve's album or whatever. You know, it's just having that creative spark and just feeling feeling things moving and you know tapping into that part of your personality, I guess you could say can be really exciting. And the same thing with composing. You know, when you're writing music, I, I had this, I gave myself a goal. I've had it for years and finally actualized it about two months ago. I wanted to, I always wanted to write an album's worth of tunes in one day just to see if I could do it. And so I had my son pick out a nice place for me by the ocean because that was his contribution. And I went to this bed and breakfast in Connecticut, woke up at five in the morning and went till about midnight and came up with 12 songs. I was very passionate about trying to complete this task and, and just it was fun to see what would come out. Just say that you can get passionate about all of these things as you're doing them. You have this recent album on Rounder Records, Great Big World. What inspired mm-hmm. that to be the album title? Bela Fleck. We were doing this thing called the New York Banjo Tour and with Bela Fleck and Eric Weisberg who did doing banjos and Bill Keith and we're traveling around on this bus and I knew I had this album coming out and I needed a title for it so I asked everyone to contribute ideas and they did and that was the one that stuck Great Big World there's some other fairly absurd titles 
Melvin County came up with Meet the Meat Preacher and His Beef Creatures, <laughs> which just didn't seem like it would be a good title. And then another one, someone came up with this Five String Bikini, which also, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so Great Big World, Great Big World was the one that stuck. <laughs> I think for good reason. Well, tell us about the song Wild Bill Hickok. Okay. I just felt that Wild Bill Hickok was underrepresented in the pantheon of songs written about Western icons. You know, there are various songs about Jesse James, pretty well-known songs, and Billy the Kid's got some. Since I wrote a, found at least one other Jesse James song, but he just seemed like he was underrepresented, so I figured I wanted to write a song about Wild Bill Hickok. And I've got more into lyric writing in in recent years, so I thought it'd be a good challenge, and I went online and researched his life and tried to boil it down into the space of eight verses. I mean, it's almost a ballad, I suppose. And I was thinking, well, who would be really good to sing on this, you know, for a good Western song? I thought, well, Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Even though he's originally from Brooklyn, he's certainly taken on that cowboy persona and kind of is it. So after some machinations, I was able to get him to sing on the album, which was a wonderful treat because he's one of my big heroes from the early 60s. And He's still out there doing it, so it was really a treat to have him on there. And then I got Mike Compton to alternate verses with him. Mike Compton's this amazing mandolin player from Nashville who also has a voice very well suited to that kind of a song. Just constructed it from there. Tell us about having John Goodman join you on this album. Yeah, well, he did a uh, spoken word thing from there for, for Wild Bill Hickok. And I, while researching the story of Wild Bill Hickok and his history, I found this wanted help wanted really poster not wanted poster but a help wanted poster they were looking for a, a marshal for um, abilene kansas it was just this really evocative colorful blurb about what, what they were looking for in a marshal and i thought boy this would be great because it's such a long song i wanted something in the middle of it to break it up and i figured okay i'll, I'll have this i'll have someone read this and i was thinking who shall i have read this and i thought of john goodman and i'd known him from the mid-70s, later 70s, we did a show on Broadway called, back in 76, called The Robber Bridegroom, which was just kind of bluegrass musical. And then there was a um, bus and truck tour of it that I went on for a couple of weeks, and John was on that. So that's where I met him before he was in movies and all that. And then from, from time to time over the years, we'd be in touch with each other and run into each other. And, and so, uh, yeah, I've known him for low these many years and gave him a call, and he was up for doing it, so... He recorded the voiceover and we added it to the track, and that was it. Hmm. And he did a great job, needless to say. What inspired your song, Joy? What inspired the song, Joy, was... I used to play pedal steel guitar back in the later 60s and through the mid-70s. I really don't play it anymore, but I played it for five or six years and did some recordings with it. And I still love pedal steel guitar. I don't know, maybe ten years ago or so. I heard about a style of music called Sacred Steel, which is an, it's a black steel guitar tradition for African-American churches, and they would play these sacred songs in church on the steel guitar. So it's not just a country instrument. And so I thought, wow, I've never heard of this before. And there's a guy named Robert Randolph who's gotten pretty popular in recent years who's played with Eric Clapton, and he's coming out of that tradition, uh, the African-American pedal steel tradition. And he's an amazing steel guitar player. Anyway... I found this CD of Sacred Steel music at the store and figured, oh, I'll pick this up and check it out. And there's one song on there. It was all beautiful, but there was this one song that had this amazing groove 
And it was just really exciting, kind of this gospel flavor thing. And I figured, well, I want to try to recreate that, this feel for this album. I wanted it to be fairly interdenominational, so I didn't, you know, I had like a little bit of a Buddhist text, a Christian text, a Jewish text, and just used those as the, as the lyrics, you know, kind of reworked them a little bit. And I had the bass player for the Almond Brothers playing on it, because he's killer. And I had my son playing drums, and used as the basic track with me playing banjo, and then added Larry Campbell, who's played with everyone from Bob Dylan to uh, just everybody, any of the Harris, I mean, you can go down the song list, he's the consummate side musician and a great steel guitar player, so I had him just jam out on it, even though it's my album, which is a banjo album, I really wanted a lot of pedal steel guitar on there, so he added that and added some vocals, and there it was. You wrote a song on the album entitled I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Promontory Point? Mm-hmm, yeah. With Steve Martin. Right, we co-wrote that. <laughs> yeah, what does he like to write with? Oh, he's great. I mean, he's, he's great on every single level you could possibly name. I mean, creatively, he's a renaissance man. He's off the scale. And just as a human being, he's just like so mensch-like. I, I could, I'm falling over myself to say how great a guy he is. And creatively, it's just wonderful. You know, I came up with this chord progression, as I remember it, and I said, Steve, you can write a tune with this chord progression, and I'll write a tune with this chord progression. Or actually, I had him write it first, and then I tried to write something that would interact with it, so they kind of work together. And then we sat down, and he did, and came up with this great claw hammer tune, and then I just wrote a finger-picking song on the cello banjo, which is an octave lower than a regular banjo. And then we put them together, and then we kind of bounced ideas back and forth as to, you know, should we have two sections in a row or go to something else? Yeah, whatever, we arranged it together. And it was just a lot of easy-flowing give-and-take, and, and it was just a huge pleasure. And then we went in and recorded it. The album that you produced of Steve's, what was it like producing? It was a huge pleasure. I helped do pre-production work for his first album, which John McEwen produced called The Crow, so I'd already kind of been working with him in a production capacity, kind of loosely, but then when it came time for doing Rare Bird Alert, he asked if I would actually be the producer, and I gladly obliged. With this one, he was already playing with the Steve Canyon Rangers, so they had a lot of it worked out. It was more capturing what they did on stage in the studio. It wasn't like the first album where we put a band together for the recording and had to work up all the arrangements and everything. This was already kind of ready to go for the most part with some tweaks here and there but it was just a pleasure to work with again there are no egos involved at all everyone's just really let's just get a great job done here and like i say steve's the greatest and, and the band steve kane and rangers are all wonderful folks and so it was just a really completely wonderful experience on every level how did you feel when you heard that paul mccartney was going to make an appearance on the album well, it's interesting because Steve had originally considered having a couple of other people. You know, he wanted to have a couple of guests on the album. And he mentioned a couple of names. It would have been great. It would have been fun. He had the song. There was a love song, which was one of the songs he wanted to have a guest on. And it's kind of a silly love song. And I mentioned it to my son, Sean. I said, Steve's thinking of doing the song, and he's going to have, have one of these two people be on it if they agree to do it. And, and my son said... Well, why don't you have Paul McCartney? It's a silly love song because Paul had a song called Silly Love Song. And I'm going, 
yeah, right, Paul McCartney's going to be on this album. And I thought, well, it is Steve Martin. So I mentioned it to Steve, and he said, oh, that's a good idea. And he went through whatever channels and reached out to, to Paul, and he agreed. So, And, of course, in my wildest imaginings, if someone had told me when, you know, I remember when Sgt. Pepper came out, because I was I'm of an age that I was primed for that. Someday you'll be producing Paul McCartney. And, yeah, right. And then <laughs> it actually happened. And it was just, I mean, you can imagine it was one of the most flabbergasting experiences of my life, in retrospect. I mean, as we, you know, everyone was a little keyed up when he, we were waiting for him to show up. He was, a, you know, he called to say he'd be a little bit late, and he showed up. And, you know, but once he was there, he was just Paul. And we were saying, should we say Sir Paul or Paul, you know, and he, he showed up. He was with his daughter at the shore. We recorded this out in Long Island in someone's house, actually. And he showed up in shorts and sneakers and short sleeve shirt and just very cash. And so it, it, was, it just seemed very natural. But there was one point where as we were getting started and he went into the booth and I said, would you like something to drink? And he said, sure, we gave some water. And then after half an hour or so, he came out and I said, uh, would you like to rehydrate? And then he said, well, look, if I was Elvis Presley, would, would Elvis go, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Uh, excuse me, could I have some water? So here's Paul McCartney standing like two feet in front of me singing Hound Dog. And then he said, or if it was the Beatles and he offered them something to drink, would they go, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can I have something to drink, please? <laughs> and here's Paul McCartney singing She Loves You. And I think we're all just, I mean, we're very calm on the outside. But inside, we're going, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, we're we're older and sort of beyond hero worship, but there's still that thing from the, the 60s, it's Paul McCartney, and he knows, he knows that he quotes the Beatles, and at one point later on, he's saying a little bit, why don't we do it in the road, I can't remember the context, but, you know, he peppers things with these Beatle references, and he just knows that it makes people happy, and he was just very warm, and cracking some jokes, and just putting people at their ease, so it was, as you might imagine, one of the peak experiences of my life. Well, on the note of peak experiences, with so many things that you've had a chance to do, touring all, you know, mm -hmm. going and seeing a lot of interesting places as a touring musician, having albums, getting to collaborate with really great artists. What is the best thing about being Tony Triska? Honestly, <laughs> what comes immediately to mind, and I'm not just saying it's my family. I've got an amazing wife, Asunta, and my son, Sean, and my daughter, Zoe, and even our dog, Django. In the end, that's the most important thing to me, and that's the best thing about my life. And then after that, it's just as you're, you know, you're mentioning, and I've mentioned some of these people I've gotten to spend time with, and it's as I, the older I get, the, the luckier I feel. I mean, I've been playing the banjo for 50 years, and the experiences I've had, the people I've met, and getting to do exactly what I wanted to do with my life, I'm so fortunate, so fortunate. It couldn't be better. I have a great family. We have a nice house in New Jersey. I get to do this music thing. And if I ever complain about something, it's like, what? You're complaining? <laughs> what do you have to complain about? I'm so fortunate. for And musically, just for all the reasons you mentioned, the touring I've gotten to do, I'm, I'm going to uh, Brussels and Paris, actually, in about three weeks to do kind of on a vacation with my wife, but also doing some gigs over there. And I get to do that. Uh, I just can't tell you how lucky I feel. You didn't ask this, but in, in terms of the, I have to say the greatest tour I ever did was Czechoslovakia in 1988 when it was still communist. Uh, you know, just like the politi political ramifications of being an American band and playing bluegrass and seeing hammers and sickles around and 
and things like that. And just just having that experience alone would have been a life enriching experience in addition to everything else. So that's something that's amazing. On the note of the world, mm-hmm. anyone can listen to this interview. So wherever someone is, if you could say something to them, what would you say? In the world. Well, I don't know. It just sounds sappy, but hey, we're all one. We're all one person here. I mean, we're, you know, with, with all the horrible things that go on in the world, if we could try to forget our differences and remember what we're all here, we're all the same, really, in the end. And if we could just learn to love each other, that's, I guess that's what I would say. Not that one person saying that's going to really change anything, but it's, Especially, you know, it just feels like things get ratcheted up, ratcheted up to you know, tenser and tenser situations in the world. And so it's, if we could somehow let those differences go, I guess that's what I would say. My last question. Who is Tony Trishka? <laughs> <laughs> Probably other people are better able to answer that than myself. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Boy. I'm a really complex person. No, I, in what way? How do you mean that? <laughs> well, that's a, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, give me, give me, give me a uh, way in. I, I might dig, a, dig myself into a hole if I'm not careful. If this interview was like a written test and the last question was, who is Tony Trishka? What would you run? And I'm getting graded on this? Let's see. Well, I don't know. I'm a family man. I'm a, a musician. I love people. I was just talking to my son about this, and uh, I think it's really important to try to make other people happy. I guess if I have a guiding, if I can answer that by saying, you know, maybe what's something that guides your life on some level, I think that's that would maybe be it, trying to make other people happy. And, I mean, when I'm playing music, I know they can have that effect. People are come to the show, and they have a good time, and... I mean, I think anyone who plays music in the end is making other people happy. And I had a friend of mine named Richie Solberg, also known as Citizen Kafka, who lived in New York City, passed away not that long ago. And he was, we called him a citizen because he would just go up to anyone on the street and just start carrying on a conversation with them. They could be a street person, they could be the mayor of New York, they could be anybody. And he just embraced it. Everybody. And I had another friend of mine named Don Bernstein many years ago in Syracuse, New York, when I was living there. And he kind of was the same way. And this time has gone on. I feel like I've sort of been influenced by them in that way. And also playing music, you meet people from all different walks of life. I remember going to the first Bluegrass Festival in 1965 in Fincastle, Virginia, and there were lawyers and farmers and hippies and rednecks, whatever those terms meant. And we were all there just to hear music. And, and through playing music, you just, you do run into people from all walks of life. And again, being fortunate enough to travel around the world and to Europe and Japan and Australia and Korea and whatever, all the places I've been, you just meet all kinds of different people and you just, it just feels good to reach out to people and, and, and try to, whatever. This is kind of going back to my previous statement also, but I get cranky. I get, <laughs> we, we all have all, we're all many-sided, multifaceted personalities, but I guess if I wanted to go on down to one guiding thing, it would probably be that. You know, just trying to reach out to other people and make them happy. Great answer. Well, sir, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Paul. It was really, really great talking to you. I had fun. So did I. Thank you. (laughs) 
Goodbye.